1: Welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Poncek, a reporter on the Cross Asset Team.
2: And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the Markets Team.
1: This week on the show, the crazy times continue. Just consider the statistic from Bespoke Investment Group. The S&P 500's 30% drop is only its seventh since 1928 and the quickest by more than two weeks. The only two times where that speed of the decline was anywhere near as fast were in 1929, and 1987. So sure, the equity market's been wild and the VIX jumped to a record high this week, a record. But at the heart of the stock market's worries has been corporate credit fears.
2: Right. And we'll get into that with our guest. Uh, And of course, we'll close out the episode with the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Sarah, I trust there were plenty of crazy things you saw in markets this week
1: so many crazy things we saw in markets but also just in the world we should be very clear if our audio sounds a little bit strange or you hear an ambulance or maybe uh the man who lives on top of me has banned uh playing jazz um we're all coming at it from our very own homes for the first time so bear with us and it'll be a lot of fun
2: yeah you might you might hear my dog and to clarify Sarah, the man lives in an apartment above you. He doesn't literally live on, on top. He literally
1: yeah, he doesn't literally live right on top <laughs> of my head. He does live in the apartment above me, uh the luxury of of New York City. So
2: I've got a man living in my head, but that's a whole that's that's a <laughs>
1: That's a di- topic that's a different a whole other issue podcast. that we'll deal with Mike, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but Sarah, as you said, I think in uh markets these days, uh the main topic front and center on everyone's mind is the severe damage being done to credit markets. Um, so we're very happy to welcome to the show for the first time, the head of credit strategy at Wells Fargo's Securities, uh, Winnie Cesar. Winnie, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here.
2: Oh, great. Um, and I guess the, the one thing I wanted to ask you first, I know uh, this is sort of out of your normal realm of strategy, but I feel like the whole world is waiting for some kind of government uh, plan to shore up the credit markets. I mean, we, we've got a little bit of a start on that from the fed with their commercial paper facility. Um, but I'm just curious, have you given much thought to sort of what kind of government package, uh, could be put together to, to really sort of, uh, stop the bleeding in credit markets, uh, especially since obviously the fed is not allowed to buy corporate bonds, uh, but maybe that will change. Um, How's your thinking around all of that about what, what we can expect from the government when it comes to credit?
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Credit markets have dislocated very severely in recent weeks. And for us on the strategy side of things, we have been basically following the Fed's playbook. Um, they have a pretty well-recognized strategy from the financial crisis they have the benefit of being able to look back and seeing you know what worked then what didn't work um, and trying to project out what will work in this situation now I, I think that the the biggest thing that people are are really worried about in the short term across the credit markets is there's just been this massive rush for liquidity it's been the, sell everything strategy in the markets to raise cash while issuers on the corporate side of things are drawing down revolvers, taking out their delayed draw term loans at basically a record pace. And so the biggest question for corporate credit is, is there enough liquidity in the system to actually back up all these revolver drawdowns, all of the cash raising by investors? We've spoken for I don't know, years now since the financial crisis, just about how much liquidity was pumped into the system by the Fed and other central banks. And so now this is the real critical point where we figure out, did all of the regulations put in place on the banking system uh, post-crisis? Are they actually going to do what they were designed to do? and give uh, borrowers the type of liquidity uh, that we really need right now when we have no idea about the duration of this crisis and the real magnitude of it all. So we are following the Fed and other central banks very closely while also trying to figure out what the fiscal plan is from Uh, The government and, you know, we've seen a number of central banks come in and say that they are putting IG corporate debt as, uh, you know, an eligible asset for quantitative easing programs. And I think that there is a lot of speculation that the Fed in conjunction with Congress and the U.S. Treasury may have to ultimately go down that path.
1: What do you make of that possibility? I mean, we, we saw the op-ed from Janet Yellen and Bernanke in the Financial Times raising that, that maybe the Fed could step in and buy corporate bonds. I mean, if that were to actually happen, one, what might that look like? And two, how might that actually help the system at this point in time?
0: So, you know, I think that the, the, the mechanics of it are, are definitely yet to be seen. We have the playbooks from other central banks, Uh, where, you know, it's just open market purchases and they, you know, go in and they have their list of eligible securities and you oftentimes see the basis between those eligible securities and ineligible uh, widen when you have market volatility. So, you know, it's yet to be seen what the Fed's playbook would would actually be in conjunction with Congress and the the Treasury. Um, But, you know, historically, if we look back at the Fed putting MBS on its list of securities that they're going to buy that stabilized the market pretty considerably in the financial crisis. And, you know, this go around MBS is already in the, the newest QE program. Um, and, you know, it's not proving to be quite as uh, much of a quick fix as I think some people might have thought it would be. Um, so you know, I, I think that the, the biggest issue right now is that the front end of the curve is under tremendous pressure because everybody just wants cash. And right. you know, we we don't have the solutions in place quite yet to normalize that front end of the curve. I, I think that we are definitely creeping toward that point. And you know, one of the things that I think you have to keep in mind is we are still in Q1 for corporate borrowers which means that, you know, they want to have as much cash on hand for their Q1 filings, so that when they report earnings, they can say, you know, look at this liquidity that we have on hand. So the big question is, are we now taking too much liquidity out of the system in one fell swoop? And we're going to go back in six weeks from now and say, OK, well, maybe we didn't need to all be drawing down our revolvers at, at the same time. It's, you know, it's a very interesting kind of game theory issue that we have backed ourselves into.
2: You know, Winnie, I, I know the focus has been on when you talk about sectors that obviously the energy sector is once again the big concern in credit uh, travel and leisure and hospitality uh, clearly is is a, a big source of concern. But I feel like there's potential for this to just bleed into other sectors. Um, you know, are, are, are there any sectors you think that have either um, uh, not priced in the risk uh, enough yet or, or maybe went too far? Um, I'm just trying to think where this goes next after, you know, energy and, and clearly the travel and leisure uh, sectors have been hit pretty hard.
0: Yeah, that it's it's a great question and, and one we're grappling with on a very regular basis. I personally have been very surprised by how well technology has held in in both investment grade and high yield. Tech is one of the tightest trading sectors, despite, you know, in my opinion, having pretty tremendous exposure to supply chain and then cyclicality issues. Um, So that's one of the the segments where we've been a bit more cautious um, and it hasn't worked so far. So we're we're definitely, you know, looking at pressure points and maybe if there are positive catalysts that we were we're just overlooking. Um, The media side of things is also interesting. You have some some different gives and take where with more people at home, you'll see more streaming. There will be some media winners from that. Um, but you also don't have people in movie theaters. And how long is it going to take for you know people to really be comfortable going to a movie and, and being in a in a crowded space? I don't know. Generally, public perception of, of these types of issues take a little bit longer for people to get comfortable again um, than I think some people estimate. And then. Also, you know, the, the home building, building products side of things, that's been very resilient um, in this market. Um, and the, there's clearly going to be a slowdown in home buying if we have unemployment just spiking all of a sudden. Now, the big question is, you know, what are the jobs that we're actually losing in the economy Are those jobs, you know, going to coincide with people who would be trying to buy homes? Um, You know, there's probably a a little bit of a a glimmer for home construction if we have the ability to do a lot of the, um, you know, more uh, finance, law, the kind of tech, higher, higher paid, higher wage jobs rather than the hospitality industry where, you know, it's still not the the most well-paid industry um so i'm definitely looking you know pretty closely at what's going on in the housing
1: market as well yeah timing here is is such a big question really no one has any way of knowing how long this is going on for and i mean you talk about stimulus what fiscal can do what they can do on the monetary side and you hope that to an extent that does help but i'm kind of just curious i mean how long can the U.S. economy, as it's built now, actually sustain being shut? Like, even if you do have liquidity being pumped into the system and you have a way of getting cash to companies to help build themselves back up, I mean, at what point does it potentially just become too much?
0: (laughs) I I wish I really knew the answer to that because I feel like I could probably make some very good bets if I did. You know, when when I talk to my... My econ experts about you know how severe this can be for GDP. You know, most of them like to refer me back to the early 1980s, and we had a pretty severe downdraft in economic growth, but it was very short lived. And you know, I, I think that long term, as a corporate credit investor. I continue to believe in the viability of capitalism. I don't think that this is going to be, you know, the the end of times for um, American capitalism as we know it and globalism. You know, I, I think that we're going to eventually right ourselves. Having the economy as shut down as it is, I think, means that the recovery is less likely to be V-shaped because it, it takes time to... Turn things back on and and get people back in seats, get people back flying for business purposes. Um, so it, it will be interesting to to see how this plays out from you know a, a liquidity standpoint the the longer this lasts, clearly the worse it is for the very highly leveraged issuers. and And that's the big concern is what happens in the leveraged loan market, what happens in the fringes of high yield and single Bs and triple and Cs. You know, these issuers generally don't have 12 to 24 months of liquidity. Similarly, you know, small businesses a- across the U.S. generally don't have all that much extra liquidity just sitting on hand to kind of manage through these issues, um, and I think that that's where the federal government has to come in with fiscal stimulus. And, and they basically have to you know, tell us how much time they think this is going to take to, to remedy and then also provide that stopgap liquidity to get things moving back in, in the right direction again.
3: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know, Winnie, obviously the, the big elephant in the room during uh, the, the global financial crisis uh, a decade ago was the credit default swap market. Um, you know, it's simply just grown way too big, uh, bigger than the amount of debt that it was actually uh, insuring. Um, once again, we're hearing the words CDS and credit default swaps again. It's kind of kind of a a uh, sends a shiver up your spine to some degree. But my sense is that um, it's not quite the elephant in the room. It was at one point that all the reforms uh, that have been done uh, in the inter- interim have have made them less of a sort of a uh, systematic risk. I'm curious, you know, is that is that the right take on that? And if so, are there other sort of pockets of the credit markets that we should be worrying about like you mentioned leveraged loans uh uh that sort of thing obviously that is a very uh performing sector uh at the moment um but i'm just curious wh- what do you think of you know the sort of cds market as it stands now in 2020 compared to back then and you know tangentially are there other sectors in the credit markets that uh, could kind of sneak up on us and, and be that elephant in the room the way credit default swaps were a decade ago?
0: Sure. I mean there there are a few. So when it comes to CDS specifically, that market has been very much transformed. you know we don't have the risk of these pervasive bilateral CDS contracts where you're also exposed to, you know, massive counterparty risk. The, there's been a pretty robust um, clearing facility put in place, and I know from a number of the investors that I speak with in the U.S. You know, they they prefer to use the the cleared CDS. So that market is a much more regulated, functioning market than it used to be, and it it also is a lot smaller um, than it used to be. So you know, I don't I don't worry at night about this, the CDS market. Now, where I do worry is leverage loans and then the growth of what people refer to as the private credit market, where because of regulation on banks and because of just an absolute lack of yield in the system for much of the post-crisis period, We've seen a lot of growth in these, you know, smaller kind of clubby or direct lending deals um, that you traditionally would have been the the purview of the the big banks, and now have that risk has been moved somewhere else. Um, and you know, a lot of it is pension funds that are now involved in private credit. So, you know, it's it's the end investor who is exposed to potential severe default rates and pretty dramatic losses on, you know, capital that is locked up in this private credit market. Um, On the leveraged loan side of things, there has been tremendous growth in the the broadly syndicated loan markets. It now stands at about the same size as the uh, U.S. high yield markets. And there's also been a lot of, degradation in, in fundamentals. So you saw a lot of loan-only capital structures, which means that there is no unsecured debt. So if if you have a first lien loan in a loan-only capital structure, it really makes you wonder about recovery assumptions because there's there's no cushion for the blow there when when things go really bad. So you know, loans and private credit are two of the things that I I'm thinking about within this context, because I, I think that ultimately what happens is government intervention is going to be um, kind of barbelled where the the biggest corporations, the airlines, the, um, the real you know, name brands that are getting very hit in this economic slowdown, I think that they're ultimately going to come through it the other end because the government is going to provide support. And then also, I think that there's a a tremendous focus on Main Street now and these smaller businesses and trying to figure out how do we, you know, have have them have provide them enough liquidity to to manage through this. But then there's this kind of middle ground of the economy where you're not necessarily big enough to. Um, get the government's attention, but you're you're probably too big to benefit from kind of the the smaller you know micro loan um, type packages that may ultimately come to fruition.
2: Yeah, it it almost seems like Wall Street's easier to bail out than Main Street. You know, in the in the financial crisis, you knew where to point the fire hose at the big banks Uh, in this situation, it just seems like the fire could be all around you. It's just, it it seems like a very tricky thing uh, for the government to wrap its head around.
0: And I think that that is something that we have tried to point out to regulators and in our, you know, just discussions and we've had discussions with investors is you can never fully eliminate risk from the system, no matter how much the regulators would like to try. You can shift risk around. And and what's ultimately happened is risk is now held on, you know, the balance sheet of most Americans in terms of, you know, what's in their 401k, what's in their pension plan, um, because it, it's been much more of this kind of shadow banking direct lending system that's emerged to work around some of the regulatory issues that were put in place and, and constrained the big banks
1: absolutely we are really facing surreal times and crazy times and it's true it's just hard to know where where do you direct that fire hose where do you direct your efforts if so many people across the spectrum are going to be affected
2: yeah sarah was that a tease there the crazy times
1: it's trying to set you up a little bit
2: (laughs) winnie did they tell you about our gimmick here the craziest thing i saw in markets
1: I was giving a little bit of
0: advance warning and I also was doing my diligence and listening to a few of the podcasts earlier. So I that did come up on my radar.
2: So we'll start with you. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? I know it was a pretty tame week, not much going on, but, but maybe you all. saw something.
0: I have <laughs> many that I can talk about. Um, you know, the the first one, which is I'm still trying to wrap my head around, is in the investment grade corporate bond market. Tuesday of this week was the biggest new issue volume day this year. So it spreads, you know, more than more than double what they were earlier this year. We were still able to price 27 billion of IG bonds at an average coupon of three and a half percent, which over the long term perspective is still a very attractive cost of capital for most investment grade companies. What does that
1: tell you about the help of the market?
0: So, you know, I, I keep facilitating between believing it's a a tremendously encouraging sign and a very terrifying sign, because on the one hand, (laughs) if these deals are clean, clearing the market, companies are still able to borrow at, you know, very attractive rates, then that is a long-term positive thing for investors, now, then I, I kind of look back at, at where yields went during the great financial crisis, because, you know, in, in many other markets, we've, we've seen much more of a, a repricing of, you know, cost of capital. Um, and then I begin to wonder, you know, are these investors using up their liquidity firepower too quickly? I, I certainly hope they're not. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the optimist and say the glass is half full. And if the credit markets are continuing to function and the new issue market is open, then that is that is an encouraging, you know, glimmer of hope across financial markets.
2: The, the hunt for yield survives another day.
0: Yes, indeed. And then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, still in the investment grade market, there are some issuers where the front end of the curve is so severely inverted that, you can buy an IG bond that has a maturity this year for call it 18%. And then if we look at the cash on hand from revolver drawdowns and cash balances, they are covered in that bond with cash on hand, you know, multiples over. So there's,
3: there's a tremendous
0: dislocation between, you know, what some parts of the market are telling you and then other parts of the market. And it's trying to figure out, you know, Which signals should we believe and which signals are a false dawn?
2: Yeah. And so much of that must just be this this dollar funding squeeze and and the liquidity issues, I would imagine.
0: Yeah. A lot of it just has to do with money markets, dollar funding and the front
2: end of the curve. Crazy times. Sarah, how about you? What did you see this week?
1: Uh, I have uh, two, but I'll keep it pretty short and simple. One, just Monday, was absolutely insane. You have another circuit breaker trigger, and then I mentioned it, but the VIX moving to the highest level on record, so above any single point of the global financial crisis back in 08, 09, um, pretty unbelievable. But then uh, just another interesting story, I thought we have the U.S. government now talking about the idea of helicopter money, but Facebook um, is moving ahead of the curve. They've already said that they're giving each of its employees a $1,000 bonus to help support them during the outbreak. So just an insight to what some companies are already trying to do to help alleviate any pain from their employees.
2: All right. Very good. Very good. Well, in the spirit of deregulation, Sarah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bend the rules a little bit on this.
1: You've bent the rules the past like five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but because, we'll, 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 these are trying times. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> they're trying times. Uh, obviously, the virus is the most important thing uh, markets are dealing with right now. So I'm I'm found some very crazy virus related stories, not necessarily market related stories. But if you have a terminal. I highly recommend you run the function ni odd. It just finds all the odd stories from the internet and compiles it into one place. It's it's really worth the the subscription price alone. So let me give you some of the craziest uh, coronavirus stories I've seen out there. Uh, New York Post is way ahead of the game on this. Uh, I, I will say, and they had one story: a man in Spain. You know, obviously, there's a shortage of of face masks. So this guy in Spain decided to get in his T-Rex costume. It's one of those inflatable T-Rex costumes. And he was wandering around Spain, but they arrested him, I guess, because he's he's not supposed to be outside. Well, he
1: was breaking the quarantine? <laughs>
2: yes, yes. I love also that, Also in the post, here, I'll just read the headline. <laughs> Cheating husband catches coronavirus on trip to Italy with mistress.
1: Oh, no. So, <laughs> oh, no.
2: <laughs> oh, no. Headline news. is... is Karma is alive and well in the in the time of the coronavirus. And finally, this this one is vaguely markets related. And this is my favorite uh, from CBS. Bernie Madoff is among the famous in, inmates out there who want an early release because of coronavirus. He's a in his 80s. He's worried that if the virus hits the the um, prison. That uh, he'll be susceptible at at that age, uh, one of the people at risk. So I don't know, Winnie, You think they should should they spring Bernie Madoff because of the virus? What do you think?
1: I feel like you're almost safer in prison from yeah. the coronavirus than you are outside of prison. <laughs> that's just my uh, my take on it. I I think, right. I
0: think that's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> <lose> <laughs> comment on that pass. smart answer,
2: <laughs> smart answer. <laughs> I'm not sure Bernie's going to get away with this one, though. No. That's, that's, uh, it seems, a, seems like a long tell. shot to me. Yeah. Time will
1: tell. Uh, well, with that said, trying to keep a, a lighter tone in the midst of all of this. Winnie, Cesar, we know you're coming to us from home, so we really appreciate you taking the time today.
0: Happy to be here. This was a welcome deviation from staring at the screens.
1: What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at atsarapancek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow us on Bloomberg Podcasts at podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.